listener production. Welcome back. You are listening to episode 125 of the Howie Games, part B, featuring swimming beast Daniel Kowalski. Let's dive back in. Okay, so as much as you would like to, now that you can look back at it 20-odd years later, take me into the days before, the day of, you mentioned right at the start your mental preparation and you mentioned that he's your hero at this stage, Kieran, and he's out in lane eight, you've qualified in lane four. Were you ready to win? Like how were you feeling about the biggest race of your life? Um, I wanted to make a statement in the heat. Um, I was in the second last heat. Kieran was in in the last heat. And then after my heat, um, I was fastest qualified to that point. Um, And I'm swimming down. And one of the team coaches comes up to me and says, oh, like Kieran's going to miss out on the final. Um, And so straight away I've got this, oh, oh, yes, that's an amazing thing, I'm going to win. And then the other thing's like, oh, if the defending champion and world record holder's not in there, there'll always be an asterisk. And then as it turns turns out, he qualifies by like point two or something, out in lane eight, I'm in lane four, I knew right then and there I was not going to win. Um, and this is what I mean by I was a good swimmer, not a great swimmer. Pretty much my entire international career, Kieran was either in the lane next to me or he was within sight. And the way you explained it before, we had a way of swimming to 1500 where we broke the backs of our competitors in the first 100. The fact that I was not going to be able to see him I didn't know how. I'd, I was like, "What am I? How am I going to do this?" I, he was, you know, he was my benchmark, um, and for me, that rattled me to the point where I, I obviously didn't didn't recover mentally. On their block, Kieran rolling forward just a little bit, and they're away, missing it slightly across in six. The Italian Brembilla doesn't matter all that much. Well, look into the crystal ball. What about the tactics? Well, I don't think looking at this first 25 metres, Kieran's going to do exactly what he's always done. He's taking it out hard. And Daniel's going out with him, which is a little bit of a surprise. He normally likes to stalk and then come from behind Daniel. That's been his tradition and the trademark of his racing. Perkins definitely a front runner. But the excitement started to build um, amongst athletes from other sports who were talking a lot about the, the race and how they wanted to try get in to watch it or where they were going to watch it. Um, my parents, unfortunately, didn't get to the Olympics, so I thought I'd call them for some, you know, some um, avoidance of what was actually happening. And my, my family are like, oh, we've got all the television vans out here and we're actually going to have a barbecue because it was a Saturday morning in Australia when it was, when it was on and they were going to have a, a barbecue for all the camera crew that were there and... And so that, that just made me more, even more anxious. And also in the back of my mind is we still haven't won a gold medal in the pool. Um, and then the biggest thing is Kieran is Kieran. He is the king. And I have to overcome that. And so in my mind, you know, I'm thinking he's playing mind games with me. As I tell you, Perkins is going quick. And he's looking to me like he's going to go around 14... 55 to 15 minutes and if that's the case then Daniel's going to really have his work cut out and it is going to live up to all its expectations the showdown that we wanted we hoped for is slowly unfolding and building right before us 
you know, it's been interesting over COVID, you know, there's, I've heard him do a couple of interviews and his, his rem- memory of how things happened to mine are, are very different and I think that's a reflection of how I approached it mentally and where I, my head was at. Um, and so that, the period between heats and finals was just was not the way you want to prepare for an Olympic final. <laughs> 200 metres to go. Kieran Perkins is out by 15 metres. Smith is second. Kowalski is third. So when you're walking out on the pool deck for the Olympic final, is it still in your mind that you're not going to win? And this is the interesting thing, right? I walk out onto the pool deck for the 200 freestyle final on night one. Um, it was the last event of the night. There were only our support staff um, were in the stands because obviously everyone had gone back to, to rest and so forth. Um, and when it came to introducing my name, I, I, I freaked out so much when they started the introductions because as that nine-year-old kid and watching LA, I remember the way they did it and now they're doing it for me first in French and then in English and I stand up and I wave like I know everyone in the crowd and there's, there's no, one, no Australians in there. And then you fast forward to the night of the 1500 freestyle final, Susie O'Neill and Patria Thomas have just gone one, two and turned a butterfly. Pretty much all the swimmers have finished unless they were swimming in the relays. We had other athletes from other sports in, in the stand, other Australian athletes. And then I felt like half the crowd were Australian. There were so many flags. I was so scared. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be that nine-year-old kid in my lounge room again because that's when it was fun that's when it was innocent and I was so scared it's a very honest and open thing to say um it's very hypocritical of me in my role um to not be open and transparent about my experience I couldn't have done this for 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 a number of years and I think coming to terms of who I am as well yeah was a big part in being able to come to terms with my results as well. Coming down to complete 1,400, Kieran Perkins is well clear. Smith is second, Kowalski is third. And he's got a lead of about 20 metres. Daniel's got to get some, the bit between his teeth. We can go one, two here. Come on, Daniel, fight for that silver sun. But Kieran Perkins stand and salute Australia. So when you get out of the pool, and again, this is where there's a strange juxtaposition because... I watch this. Uh, you will have been told a million times at, at where people watch this race. I've got no doubt. And I'm about to tell you where I watched it and no one will have told you they watched it from there. I watched it from the cardboard box backpackers in Windhoek, which is the capital of Namibia, which is the country north of South Africa on the West Coast. Wow. It was, I, I think it was late at night because I reckon... I'd had a few beers, but the entire coverage, you know, the, the, the traditionally it's been Channel 7 in Australia. They focus on the Australians. I'm going to put you on the spot. I'll ask you, do you know who uh, Namibia's number one Olympic athlete of all time is? Frankie Fredericks. Frankie Fredericks, silver medalist. So she was wall to wall what's Frankie Fredericks doing, but he wasn't a swimmer. He was a sprinter. So they showed the swimming because he wasn't competing at that time. And I can't, I can clearly remember, Dan, and this comes back to what I said to you at the start, I can clearly remember thinking, geez, I hope he gets out of the pool, my man, and that's who you were in my mind, and he's pumped with his performance. And since I've got older and talked to Olympians, I realise that's not often the case. So 
for me and the rest of the community, we're like, wow, he's an Olympic silver medalist. Bloody great job. How is it for you? You are seeing the best of the best. You are a superstar, Kira Perkins. Save at the moment, Australia. And look at Kowalski coming for the silver. Kowalski coming after Smith. We'll bring Perkins in. About 15 metres to swim. This is rare gold. The best kind of goal. Perkins goes in first. What a great win. And a race for second. A race for the silver. Smith and Kowalski. They come down to the wall after 1,500. Yes! Kowalski got it. Another Quinella, if you don't mind. Daniel Kowalski, obviously disappointed. And queuing straight over to him. What sportsmanship. No shame in that. Two superstars of Australian sport, ladies and gentlemen. At that particular point in time, knowing full well the enormity of what he had achieved, I just wanted to be able to duck away and go into my own corner and deal with it. But having understood that, um, you know, you've got a back-to-back champion achieve what he had, I knew that I had to hold my head high. I had to put on a brave face to be honest with you. And the one thing that sort of gave me that glimmer of this is okay was I still got to stand on that podium and I got to hear the anthem. It wasn't necessarily being played for me in the context of when an anthem is being played, but that was my teammate, that was my friend, that was my hero who also happened to be my rival and the anthem was being played for him and I got to share in that experience and that was kind of the only sort of thing that got me through from a positive point of view. And when did you let your emotions, your real emotions take over? Were were you in a room? Was it the next day? Was it the next week? It wasn't until we got home. um, It got to participate in all the the welcome home parades and you realise well, I realised the enormity of the situation, um, the number, you hear the stories of where people watched it and and for me, straight away, I failed. I let so many people down um, and that took a really long time to, to sort of rationalise that what I did was something to be proud of because in my eyes, um, yeah, I failed. So now your job that you have, and you said it'll be hypocritical not to talk about these things openly, two sides from there, do you now find yourself in a position where you're saying to young athletes that an Olympic silver medal or a bronze medal or a PB, anything but a gold medal is not a failure? Um, I don't use, I don't like to talk medals. I don't like to talk results, um, outcome. Um, I learned from my own experience that you need to recognise and respect the process and then the outcome will will happen. Um, But one of my key learnings, and I was going to say this earlier, was I learned to recognise that um, people aren't going to love me anymore if I'm a gold medalist or if I come forth. Um, They're going to love me because I'm a nice person um, and that I had the honour to represent my country, the result is irrelevant. Um, And at the time, as you're living as an athlete, if someone said that to me, they'd probably, like, beat it. You have no idea what you're talking about. But 
this is where the importance of experience and if I can pass on anything, it's, it's respect the process and recognise that people are going to love you for you, not for what you achieve. And on the mental side of things, if you took yourself back 25 years and could talk to yourself <laughs> as far as the mental preparation goes, well, you've got your hand in your heads now, I'm not even going to talk anymore. You just pick it up from there. I just... I would just tell myself to just be, this sounds really kind of, just be kind to yourself, like, and not get so wrapped up in what people are going to think or people are going to say and recognise that people are still going to like me regardless of that outcome. And just to have fun. That's why you started to do it in the first place. And I lost sight of that. Um... And I would love to have my time again. I had so many regrets um, and a lot of the regrets I could have controlled. And I, I didn't because I just got so caught up in things that I didn't need to get caught up in. And so I would tell myself that. So if you were Daniel Kowalski in the current Australian team competing at the 2021 Tokyo Olympics, could you still, this is not the right term, but I use it anyway, could you still slip through the cracks as far as mental preparation goes or would there be more support around you and would that support now looking at it, whether it's a sports psychologist, etc., would that have helped improve your performance? The thing was the support was there. Um, for me, um, it had been ingrained that getting support was a sign of weakness it was a sign of vulnerability. You couldn't show your cards like that. Um, and so it was, it, was, it was all there. And today it's, it's all there. Um, it's, it's more re refined. It's better resourced. It's got more, you know, science um, and data behind it. But at the end of the day, we can provide all these programs on platters to athletes, aspiring Olympians, Paralympians, unless you choose to buy into it and take up the offering, then it, you're going to fall through the cracks. Okay. So we, we talked about Kieran and then comes Grant. So do you look at it as you're obviously so proud of the teams you represented, as you should be. Do you look at it that you were blessed to swim against two of Australia's greatest ever swimmers, or do you look at it that you were Stuart McGill and a genius at what you did, but Shane Warne was there? And you had two bloody Shane Warnes. It's funny, I've, I've had this conversation with Stuart McGill, um, and for me, huh. um, I see it as an absolute blessing. I'm so honoured and proud to be a part of it because I, I saw I was in the same race as Glenn Houseman when... He unofficially broke the world record at the Commonwealth Games trials in 1989. I had like 150 metres to go, but I, I, was, I was in the pool. And then I watched him and Kieran go one, two, a few weeks later in Auckland. I knew who Andrew Boy Charlton was. I knew about Murray Rose, Steve Holland. I was so aware of that. The fact that I could be a part of that was something that still to this day, I'm, I, it blows my mind. Um, 
And for me, Grant Hackett used to get thrown into my lane as a punishment when I was on the Gold Coast training. Did he? I used to lap him. Dennis would throw, <laughs> Dennis would throw him in when he was being a little smartass, which was quite often. Um, I shouldn't really say little because he was always a big kid. But, you know, yeah. It, so for me, I've my relationship with Grant is very different because I always felt like I was sort of like a, a big brother. I was never really a competitor because post-96, I never beat him again. Um, he got fifth at Olympic trials, I think it was, in 1996. So my relationship with him is different um, in a really positive way. But at the end of the day, the fact that I've been a part of that legacy is pretty cool. And you mentioned in the player profile, if people haven't listened to it, they should go back and listen to Dan's famous dish that he cooks now, um, which involved pineapple, but is unfortunately not pizza. You mentioned that, that one of the people you'd invite to the to, to the, the the dinner was Kieran and how you have a fantastic relationship with him. Is that something that came later on or is it something consciously you had to do? Because it's like the old, you know, Formula One teammates, they start the season, they get on well, and then when they can both win, it, it splits, and that's happened in sport. How, how have you worked on that relationship to have it in obviously such a special place that it is now, or is it not something you had to work on? Uh, it's nothing that I ever I, – I feel like I never had to work on it because um, we would have training camps and um, we would room together um, – and I was like, oh my, I'm rooming with Kerry Perkins. This is amazing. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> a few months later, I'm standing on the, on the block next to him. Um, and then once we'd both retired, I, for a number of years, and it, it, sometimes it slips my mind, but I, all, I would always send a happy anniversary on the day of the 26th of July um, <laughs> saying, you know, happy 10th anniversary, whatever, whatever it is. Um, so, no, I never felt like I had to work on it. Um, and one of the reasons, and we've never had the discussion, is I would love to sit down with him at dinner and just ask him, like, in an intimate setting, like, what was your experience like? Like, how were you able to do that mentally and, and what did you draw from it and or draw mm-hmm. on to achieve that? So for me, I'd, that's what I'd love to find out. But... You know, he's now the president of Swimming Australia, which I think is an incredible thing for for our sport. Um, He just goes about his business um, um, without any fanfare. He just does it. And I just really respect and admire him, like I I said, and and I see him as a, a, a great friend. More of Dan shortly. We have been fortunate enough over the years to feature some wonderful swimmers on this podcast. Liesl Jones, episode 60, Ian Thorpe, episode 64, Grant Hackett, episode 82, and episode 71 featured sisters Kate and Bronte Campbell. What kind and beautiful people they are. It was an episode full of laughs, but also featured some really emotional conversations, including Kate talking about her Rio 2016 Olympic experience. It was like my world had ended and it had stopped and it was dark and quiet. Um, it, it, it Kind of like in, in those movies where everything else just kind of spins around you and you remain in the same spot. And then they blew the whistle. I had to get out of the pool. And I went and I did my post-race interview 
and I, I don't remember much about it. Then I walked through the mix zone and talked to the press journos. And then I made the long walk back down to the warm down pool and I could, I could see my coach. standing um, at the end of that pool. And sport is really interesting because when you do well, everyone knows what to do. But when you don't do well, people don't know what to do. And it was a long, lonely walk and the first words I said to my coach, first words I said to Simon was, I'm so sorry, this isn't what I wanted for us. That's Kate and Bronte Campbell on episode 71 of the pod. Alrighty, let's get back to Dan. Dan, we have a lot of kids, a lot of young adults listen to this show and it started off as a podcast talking about sport and then early days a fellow called Jake Edwards talked about mental health and suicide and Liesl Jones went on a similar path. I've had a couple of cricketers recently, Michael Holding especially, talk about racism. Uh, An episode with Dylan Olcott that I just recorded a couple of days ago where he talked about disability and it was an uncomfortable conversation because I didn't know the words to use. We have never spoken on this show about sexuality. And that's a really uncomfortable thing for me to say to you. Is it something we should talk about in this forum or not? Um, Listen, I'm more than comfortable and happy to talk about it. And I think um, you, you said it a couple of times now, where it's comfortable is because people are scared to have the conversation through fear of saying the wrong thing and they're going to upset someone. Um, and so for me... I'm, I didn't I, I didn't want to upset you is my starting point. No, no, definitely not. And, um, you know, my, my path to coming out was not a traditional one, nor is it something I felt like I needed to do. At the time, I didn't understand why I would need to do it. But I think what... Um, like the marriage equality vote, um, what that demonstrated was if you can have conversations and you can respect people's views as to why they either voted, were going to vote yes or no, you didn't necessarily have to agree with them, you didn't necessarily have to like it, but you needed to respect it. And for me, I think conversation and storytelling when it comes to this is really powerful. So I'm more than happy to talk about it. Well, that fills me with joy because it's something I I would really like to talk about with you. So was it tied to, you you know, you mentioned a couple of times and it it rung a bell in the back of my head, you know, that people will love you no matter what colour or not or how you perform. At that stage, you weren't known in the general public as gay when you were competing. So just that, is that the right word for me to use? Yeah, yeah, it is, but I didn't I, I didn't know myself at the time right. either. 
Um, so tell me about that then. Yeah, but maybe in hindsight I did. Like this is what I, I this is probably the thing that I struggled with the most was like part of the reason and, and this is what I'm thinking after the fact is when I came out, um, it was like there was this release of all these sub, sort of con- conscious thoughts and one of the ones that really resonated with me was did I, you know, did, when I stood up on those blocks, did I struggle because I didn't know who I was? Um, and then for me, like I'd, I'd had, you know, a girlfriend as recently as 2003. So when I came out to my family in 2005, whilst they weren't necessarily surprised, there was still an element of surprise. But, may you know, I... I, it's it's really hard to explain, but I didn't know who I was and didn't know myself. And then, but when it did, when I did come out and I felt comfortable with that, it, it all sort of made sense. How, how was the? How do you approach? How do you approach a conversation like that with your family? Do you just roll up and say it, or how do you go about that? Um, you use Christmas so that everyone's together. <laughs> okay, okay, it's a good present. It's a beautiful present. Yeah. Um, Listen, I had um, really struggled in the few months before for a number of reasons, um, coming to coming to terms with it, um, accepting it. Uh, you know, you fight it for a really long time, but the reality is, is that you, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't do that anymore because it was becoming increasingly unhealthy for my mental health, and so. Um, I knew I just had to bite the bullet and and do it and and tell my family and I you know I can joke about it now but it was really anticlimactic because you in your head you work it up to be this massive thing and then it's not and and then your dad gives you a hug and says I love you even more and that type of stuff it's it's a beautiful thing so I'm one of the lucky ones though. So a couple of questions come from that. Um, apart from I love your dad even more after the way you've described, after you've described that. Oh, do you, what about making it public when you're a public figure? Do, do, you, do you need to? Do you want to? Do you have to? How, how does that? These are deeply personal questions I understand. No, not at all. Um, nothing, nothing's off limits. Um, you know, I didn't plan to, I didn't intend to. Um, you know, it was five years from when I told my parents to when I came out publicly. Um, and I've kind of only just recently started talking about this, but at the time I was very strong in that it is my business and my business only. Um, whilst I recognise parts of my life were quite public, you know, I didn't feel there was a need for me to do anything. You know, you, it's not often you, everyone's screaming, I'm straight and, you know, here's my partner. Um, no, exactly. But I started to get calls um, from some of the publications saying that they were going to out me. Um, and for me, the thought of um, being publicly outed um by a trashy magazine was something that I really struggled with because it, it was my story to tell and I wanted to be able to control the narrative 
um, and the fact that that potentially was being taken away from me um, sort of hit a pretty emotional raw nerve and um, one of my dear friends has a PR company and she's like, okay, let's tackle this head on and we'll do a deal. And I was like, no, I, I want to do it my way. And my way was I wanted to write a piece about it in my own words. And so um, I was able to do that along with the story. And, and one of the things that was important to me was I wanted to provide a, a, a contact point for someone to reach out to me if they were struggling too. Um, and so they were all the conditions of, of me coming out publicly. I could control the narrative and and that is why my thoughts on why I did it differ today than before is because I saw the positive impact that it had on a number of people. I'd learned to recognise that the hate mail that I did get was a reflection of the people sending the mail, not about who I was. And so that was a really sort of um, the best way for me to have done it because it made me feel like I could make a contribution to, to the process of coming out in a positive way. It's horrible that we live in a world that someone can ring you up and threaten you with something like that. Are you talking they get on the phone and they say, right, unless you give us the story, we are going to go and tell people in our publication that you're gay? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, That's shit. That's really shit, isn't it? Like that is that is the lowest level of journalism, for want of a better term, that I could think of. And there, there were a number of instances in, in the lead-up to, to that over a period of probably... 10 years where someone would be like, oh, I'm, I, I remember, I remember um, being on a Qantas flight and um, a very dear friend of mine um, was, she was a flight attendant on it. She goes, oh, I had your boyfriend on the flight the other day. And I was like, I don't have a boyfriend. And, you know, from that moment on, I started to, this is when you start like retracting and, and worrying about this whole thing is because people, are, some people are, talking about it um, and I had, hadn't even rationalised or come to terms with it myself and and this fear and and this um, just what it does to you is it can be crippling um, and all for all the wrong reasons and for me that, that was really a trying time and so when those phone calls started happening I was like nah, they're not going to do this, they're, they're not going to they're not going to control what is is mine to tell. We're ostensibly a sports show. So did it affect your performance when you were swimming or not? I can only answer this in terms of, you know, hindsight. Um, and I, I, what I will say, it would not have changed any outcomes. Um, I do not believe that I would have improved my performances, hmm. but what I do know is I probably would have been stronger and stood up on the blocks and been prouder of myself and who I and known who I was. But would that have been enough to change any of my outcomes? Um, I've always been very strong in no, um, and and I'm comfortable with that. Your honesty provides a, a really opportunity 
to provide a really powerful message. I think that that's that you would understand that even better than I. So um, I appreciate your honesty. I'll get to the last question, which I always ask, but before we get to that, a different spin on it, and this is an incredibly important question that you're in a position to answer. People will listen to this that are in a similar situation to what you were 15 years ago. What would you say to those people? What like I don't even know if advice is the right word because such it's such a a heavy thing to say because what worked for you obviously doesn't work for everybody. But yeah, what would you say, mate? Um, I've got a number of things that I'd, I'd want to say, um, and and thankfully it has stopped. But um, the witch hunts that go on, the, the rumour that um, people with a voice or a platform um, spread about trying to find someone who is gay or out someone, that's got to stop. And thankfully, I think I think it has because to an extent anyway. Um, secondly, um, you have to... It's not just about being comfortable in your own skin. You need to have a support network around you who you know you can call at the drop of a hat or when a, mo- a moment of vulnerability um, sets in. Um, you know, you're scared, you're fearful, you're worried, um, and not, not, everyone has, not everyone has that. Um, that's why I said I felt very lucky because I had an incredible support network. Um, I guess I can only talk about my lived experience and, yeah, I copped, I copped a bit of flack. Like I said, I, I learned to recognise very on, very early on that is a reflection of them, but it's not me. But what I can say is this. I have worked in sport my entire professional career. Um, not once have I been ostracised or made to feel like I was not worthy being in a sports environment. And I say that because typically it's hyper-masculine. Um, there are sort of perceptions um, that athletes need to be a certain way and, and, and anyone who's within the system is going to be a certain way. And I feel extremely lucky that not once have I ever felt any homophobia, any backlash. And for me, that gi- has given me a lot of strength. And to anyone who may be watching, listening... Um, they they need to know whilst their experience will will be different. I, I hope they can take solace from the fact that mine has been an extremely positive one. Appreciate the honesty and openness, mate. As I said, it was it's not something you you can just sort of throw at people. So I, I appreciate you making it. Um, I think it's important, and you touched on it with you know when talking with Dylan about disability. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously in, in recent times there's been a lot of conversation around, you know, Indigenous and Torres Strait, Black Lives Matter. Um, it, don't be nervous to have the conversation or say the wrong thing. You, you, it's like anything in life. Unless you try it, you're not going to know what the outcome is. And I appreciate you being so open and transparent in terms of... You, you, in terms of having this conversation, but that is the best thing you can do is have the conversation. And if you say the wrong thing, well, at least you know then. Um, and it's going to be a reflection on the person if they end up having a go at you for saying the wrong thing. 
um, I think that's an important thing to remember. It's a. I appreciate you saying that. It's it's sitting down with Dylan. I, I was concerned about using the wrong words, and he says what happens is. In his situation, this is not in your situation, in his situation, he said people don't ask you questions about what it's like to be in a wheelchair, for example, because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. So what happens is they don't ask you any questions about anything and then you're sort of left to the side. And I never thought of it like that and it's probably the best lesson I've learned in 120-odd episodes of this show. It's a great lesson. Yeah, yeah, he's a great man, as are you, as are you. So I don't know where your medals are now. Can you, you'll never look at them like I look at them because I explained right from the start my admiration for you and the second best swimmer is an incredible achievement. Can you, if I'm holding that silver medal to you now, would you ever look at it and think, geez, I was bloody good. I was the second best 1,500-metre swimmer in the world on that day. I, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't look look at them often, if at all. Um, right. But I, I can now proudly and confidently say that there will be moments when something will happen, like I'll see a globe or I'll see a map of the world or something will trigger and I go, oh, there's only one person better than me. And that's, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Um, but it's it took, outstanding. Yeah, it took it's me a while outstanding. To get there. But I, I um, yeah, like I said, I'm extremely proud of that now. You're now going to get the question from the big penguin, who is slightly looser than his sister, um, and can go off topic a bit. So we sometimes have to um, censor his questions a little bit. But he was, um, he, he was fascinated this morning because he was asking me all questions about how much training you need to do, etc. Um, but. But this is what he came up with. He's he's nine. Here we go. Hey, Dan, Big Penguin here. <laughs> swimming may not be my favourite thing, but I still like swimming in the water when I'm body surfing and going surfing and stuff like that. But what I want to know is do you still swim? Do you swim for fun? Or do you just want to keep fit and keep swimming? Because you must have swum thousands of kilometres. You know, before you answer that, he rolled that out to me this morning and as you found, there's no real plan to this podcast. That was going to be my first question I ask you about what your relationship is with swimming and he summarised it in a nine-year-old's mind absolutely perfectly. Yeah, I, I think if I were you, I'd be looking out, looking behind you for your kids coming in. And <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. I get that, that they are the most popular part of the show a lot. So thanks for that, Dan. <laughs> no, my pleasure. Um, to answer the, the great question, yes, I do. I do still swim. Um, and I've managed to get to the point um, where I can just get in and swim. And whilst I'll still look at the clock, I won't harbour back on what I used to be able to do because it's not realistic. And to the second part of that, there is an element of vanity as to why I swim because COVID hasn't been the kindest to me. So it is important for my physical health, um, but honestly, probably more so for my mental health to keep doing it. And do you enjoy it? Is it something you look forward to? Yeah, I do. Particularly in the summer months, I um, I love... Um, for those people familiar with Sydney, um, there's a pool in Woolloomooloo called Andrew Boyd Charlton. It's right mm. on the harbour. It is 
a stunning place to to get up and and have have a swim early in the morning and, and start your day. So I do I do really enjoy doing that. One that popped into my head last night, random question, completely out of context of everything we're doing. I'm fascinated to see the Olympics unfold. Fingers crossed they do. And from all reports, reading what Mr Coates had to say on the weekend, that, that she's go, go, go. I'm fascinated to see the endurance sports, especially swimming, about how they go because your life, Kieran's life, Grant's life was about distance, distance, training, 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 training. And speaking to a few of our swimmers and even more internationally, they won't have had the opportunity to do the physical body of work they normally would have due to COVID. Like I talking to Kate eight months ago, she she we were in lockdown, she couldn't go to a pool and stuff, and people were tying their their legs to to bungee ropes and swimming. And I'm sure in Europe and places at the moment, they haven't had the ability to train as much as they wanted. This is a completely random question. How do you think it will affect performance or could it have a positive effect and we look at a new way of training for your distance events? Or is that way off the mark? No, you've hit the nail on the head with that last point um, because despite, you know, what the world has gone through, and let's face it, it's been it's been way harsher for other countries, some of the times that people are posting are incredibly fast, like really mm. fast. Um, and I happened to be on the Gold Coast the other week when they had the Australian Championships. And the one thing that I noticed and I commented to a few people is the body shapes have changed. Um, when I swam, there was less of a focus on that dry land. It started to evolve as, as I sort of transitioned out. Nutrition wasn't, wasn't as, it didn't seem as, well, obviously it's advanced. It was very good at the time, but it's advanced to a point that I, I don't even understand it. But you could see that they had made the most of the situation in terms of they'd gotten stronger on dry land, they started doing things differently, they started having a different approach to nutrition. So um, instead of focusing on what they couldn't do, they've clearly focused on what they can do. And, and you're seeing that re- those results in the pool, um, you're seeing it on the track, whatever it is. Ah. Like people have turned the negative into a positive where they can. And so I think we'll be surprised in terms of, you know, how people do go. I think the biggest factor at play is that lack of race practice, match practice, whatever it may be that, you know, for some people they like to build into their competitions, so to speak, and not having the competitions has taken away the the racing competitive aspect and and that will play a role. But I I don't think people are necessarily going to be any unfitter. They're just going to be stronger in other areas. Less kilometres. Imagine what that could have done for your shoulders, Dan. Do you know what? And that is probably one of the biggest regrets that I have um, is the pain in my body on a daily basis. If, again, if I could go back, I would definitely do something differently with regards to that because... So you have that now, do you? uh, 45 years old, I feel like I've been hit by a truck every time that I get up. So um, I I would definitely, I'd definitely do that, not something to counteract that. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, uh, so the final question, and we're, we're getting to that point, is what advice would you give for the youngsters that are growing up that want to achieve something? They might want to be an Olympian or they might want to be, as I always say, a, a clockmaker or a scientist or a mathematician. You've had some incredible experiences to draw on. What do you think is the key for young people to achieve their dreams as you have yours? 
Yeah, I've mentioned it a couple of times. It's whilst there's that desired outcome, don't be so outcome focused. Really, really focus on the process. Enjoy the process. Remember the process. We don't, we don't, you know, take and reflect on the little wins enough. Um, we just quickly move on to the next thing. And whilst, you know, we like to move quickly and we like to achieve, I think you need to reflect on those wins and savour those wins. Don't forget those wins and, and just keep on enjoying that process. I think my favourite part of this chat, and we've obviously covered some pretty heavy topics, is the fact that you can walk past a globe occasionally and think, wow, that's cool. I was the second best person on that, which which fills me with happiness. Uh, what's it been like for you? I said to you at the start, this is aims to be enjoyable for the guest. What's it been like for you to reflect and talk openly about various parts of your journey? Um, it's been cathartic. It's been um, emotional. Um in a in a in a good way, I, I still struggle on a on a daily basis in terms of um, that sense of belonging and never felt like I did belong. Um, you have an incredible ability to draw things out of your guests that they may not normally say, and I've I've, I've found that today. So. Um, without tooting your own horn, you 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 really enable great storytelling. And for me, I you know, if I was a young kid back in the day, being able to see my heroes do something like this, I just I would have had it on repeat the whole time. So I'm extremely grateful for the experience. And like I said, just so honoured to to be a part of of what you're doing because they've been incredible. Thanks, Matt. I, I appreciate it. It's a very kind thing for you to say. And, from my point of view, I mentioned to you at the start that um, way back in the player profile that one of your Olympic heroes, have you told him, it, you, you were someone I've always looked up to tremendously. So to be able to have a conversation like this on an even level, um, it's made my month. It's, 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 it's really, really cool. And as I said, I was sitting in that buddy backpackers in Namibia and I had the opportunity in the, in the restaurant with Nicole around the swimming pool and it was never a right time to be able to come up to you. And I sort of looked back and think I should have walked up to him and said, you know what, I always thought you were bloody amazing, mate. Um, so I have always thought you're amazing. So it's really, really, really fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you, mate. I, I appreciate those words and I look forward to, to catching up face-to-face soon. That'd be good. It's a nice way to finish for me to say nice things about you and you to say nice things about me. Good on you, mate. Um, Best of luck and everything. Fingers crossed for the Olympics. And it's been great to have a chat with you on the show, Dan. Thanks, Howie. Good to see you. Cool. That is an episode that I am really proud of, not for my involvement, but for the fact Dan felt comfortable enough to be so frank and talk openly about deeply personal topics. To Dan, thanks, mate, for your trust and willingness to share thoroughly throughout the episode. It now makes me smile to think that Dan can walk past a globe, look at it and think, wow, second best in the world. That is very, very special. Thanks to Das, who continues to challenge what we're doing on the show, which pushes it forward. And most importantly, to all of you for giving the app some of your time. Thanks for tuning in. Until next Thursday with Dylan Olcott, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try.
listener.